There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulder upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to, his, to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalom, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. And when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he's a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. And Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sack is gone, and there's no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well, well said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered, He is. Behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice after where those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He will save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I've seen my people because their cry has come to me. And Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go, and you will tell all that is on your mind. And I will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof and he lay down to sleep. At the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city. Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. 
And Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? You shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And it shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zalza. And they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you the two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeah Elohim, where there is a garrison or Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of the prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down with me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. When all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has overcome the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when they saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. As for the reading of God's holy word, may he now bless that word to our understanding. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, maybe you've seen uh, that particular YouTube video, uh, which has a uh, long group of people lined up at the beginning of a race. 100-meter race, that sort of thing, something along those lines. But before the race begins, the, the coach or the, the, the starter says, anybody who grew up in um, a home with two parents gets to stay, take two steps forward. And, and then some of those people move forward. And then anyone who and, uh, had three meals a day, whatever, there's all these, these kinds of uh, uh, benefits and blessings of life that are described to them. And every time you get to take a step forward, you get to take a step forward. And this is all before the race begins. So that by the time the race is about to begin, some of the people that were initially lined up at the very start line are now only a few yards from the finish. And there are people still standing at the starting line. You can imagine when the uh, starter blows the whistle or marks the beginning of the race, well, the people at the front of the line that are just a few yards from the finish line are going to win. They're going to make it to the end. And of course, that's the point of this particular illustration. The point is, is that there are so many in this life who are given great advantages, and being given those advantages are able to outpace, are able to beat, are able to win almost endlessly. There are people that can never win, that will never be able to succeed, and there are people that will always succeed no matter what. 
Now, we don't have to go into all of the politics of it. There are all sorts of layers to that analogy that are worth discussing and debating. There's all sorts of variables that need to be acknowledged and understood. I'm not endorsing it. I'm not suggesting it's an accurate depiction of life. I'm just calling you to think for a moment about that idea, that idea not of people having advantages, but of blaming society for them. That's ultimately what the point of the story is, or of the analogy. The point of the analogy is, some people are mistreated and some people are given undue and unfair advantages. In fact, there was a professor in England not that many years ago uh, who suggested parents uh, double, like a husband and a wife, a dad and a mom, uh, who are in a happy marriage, should be prevented from reading to their children. Uh, And the reason for that is it's such a remarkable advantage when you read to your children uh, your uh, abilities academically, your abilities financially, your abilities emotionally are greatly improved when you sit down with your children and just read with them a book each night. And it seems crazy to us. We think, wait a second, prevent parents from doing that? Surely that's not the right response. But that is so often the response, isn't it? That's so often the response within our society. When I fail, when I fail to experience what I believe is my right, what I believe I'm due, then I don't take responsibility for that. Not today. Oh, no. Today, I blame systemic racism. I blame uh, uh, the society in which I live. I blame all of the circumstances I, I have. My parents, my, my economic situation, my ethnicity. Everything else is to blame except for me. And that's an important principle. It, it's demonstrated the very earliest days of our lives. And in Adam and Eve at the beginning, God saying to Adam, what did you do? It was the woman you gave me to the woman. What did you do? It was the serpent. We are constantly blaming so much so that ultimately we as God's people have a tendency even to blame God. That's how deep-seated that unwillingness to take responsibility for our actions is. That's how profound our willingness to avoid responsibility is. We'll even point the finger at God and say, it's your fault, God. You shouldn't have done this. Paul talked about this in Romans 9. Some of you will say to me, why does God still find fault for who has disobeyed His will? To which then Paul says, but who are you, O man of God, to reply Shall the thing made say the one who made it? Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the right over the same clay to make one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? Paul basically says, don't forget your place, people. You are creatures. He's the creator. You are dependent. He is independent. You are man. He is God. But that's so often what we do forget. And that's what Israel was forgetting in the days of Samuel. That's what Israel was forgetting in this whole pursuit of a king. We've already seen in chapter 8 that Israel desires a king contrary to God's command, contrary to God's blessing of them. They don't want a king that will lead them in service to God. They don't want a king who will obey God and submit to God's will and word. They want a God like, or they want a king rather like the nations. They want a king that will make them happy, healthy, and wealthy. God warns them, this is a really bad path to walk down. People, you walk down this path, it's going to go bad. And the people say, we still want to walk down it. We still want to do it. Let us, get, give us the king that we want. God says, okay, I'll give you the king that you want. And that's what we have in our text this morning. That in the end, God gives to his people their choice. But he gives it to them in a way that they can't point the finger and blame him. 
He gives them their king, but in a way that they can't say, wait a second, God, you stacked the deck against us. You made it unfair. You, you, you didn't give us a good guy. Oh, no, no, no. The Lord gave the very best. This text begins for the second time in the book of Samuel with the words, we, uh, uh, there was a man of. We read that in the very opening chapter, chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man of Ramathaim Zophim. Now there was a man of Benjamin. Now the first time we read that formula, we see God work a great work of redemption. This one is a little different. The first work of God through Elkanah and his family brings about hope in the midst of darkness, power in the midst of weakness. Now, however, the difference is, or the outcome rather, is very different. And the difference is is to be found, to be honest, in the pursuit of those seeking the Lord's will. You remember at the beginning, Hannah sought to serve the Lord by being a blessing to his people. The Israelites here seek the Lord to be a blessing to themselves. They thought they knew better than the Lord, better for what was for them and what they needed. A reminder to us all that pride goes before before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now the text does begin rather well, doesn't it? There was a certain man of Benjamin and this was a man of wealth. Good start, right? We want our leaders to be men of some means. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. Ooh, now that's a good description, isn't it? There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And why was he so handsome? Well, because he was tall. You see, that's the thing. Tall people are handsome. So it starts so very well, you see. It starts so very well. Saul is the best of the best. He's from a wealthy home. He's a handsome fella. And he's tall. And this is a man that, that is willing to do whatever is necessary to be a blessing to his family. His dad says, take a servant, go find our donkeys. And Saul says, just send a servant, dad. Just send somebody else to do I don't want to bother. Oh, no. He says, yes, dad, I'll do it. And then he becomes concerned for his father at some point, doesn't he? He says to his servant, you know, we need to go back. Dad's going to get started, start to get worried, not about the donkeys, but about us. And, and, and when his servant says, well, let's go to the prophet, he says, well, but we have nothing to give the prophet. He knows that, that he has to come and he has to honor the, the prophet. He has to show respect to the prophet in some way. And indeed, he has great humility, doesn't he? At the very end of the story, he doesn't tell his uncle about the matter of the kingdom. He doesn't tell anyone. There's a humility there. Okay, he was from the tribe of Benjamin and not the tribe of Judah. And you'd expect to be a king would come from the tribe of Judah because Jacob, you'll remember, had said that the scepter would never depart from Judah. You can read that in in, in, um, Genesis 49 verse 10. But you can also read in Genesis 35 verse 11 that, that Benjamin would have some royalty in it, would have some royalty from it. So it's not altogether inappropriate for God to choose a man from Benjamin, a man who is in so many ways well suited to this task, who looks good, who seems to be such a good guy, who shows to us all the kind of things you'd want from a king, at least externally from first appearances, when you just gaze at him quickly, if you look at him without digging too deeply, then he seems so good. This is what we do, you understand. Here is the truth of our fallen hearts, even the world around us. 
here is the, the problem for so many in our culture and society. Our prime minister's haircut is more of a conversation than his policy decisions. Pierre Polyev's getting rid of his glasses becomes a matter of great discussion and debate in the media rather than what he's trying to tell about the nation and how he's trying to lead the nation. And it's always been such, certainly in the uh, television era. Many of us may, or some of us maybe, will remember the very first televised presidential debate in the United States. It was between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. And that it is said that that was one of the turning points in the election for John F. Kennedy not because he was so much clearer or communicated so much better or his eyes were so much or his ideas rather were so much uh, more profound it was just that on tv he looked a whole lot better than nixon nixon with his stubble nixon with his bags under his eyes nixon who looked an old man jfk who looked young and vibrant handsome and wealthy style over substance has long been the path to power in our world and in our day. And not only in politics. Let's not just look at politics here. Let's acknowledge that even in our own desires and choices, what we think is important in life, aesthetics has become the standard for what is right and good. Notice that the rightness and wrongness of ideas is no longer their substance, no longer their ideals or their principles, The rightness or wrongness of something is how it makes you feel, how it appears to you, how it fits within our cultural expectations. And it's not only the world that thinks that. That's not only a problem out there. Our grandparents scratch their heads at the way their grandchildren are raised. Our our form of discipline administered in our homes and in our schools is very different than the kind that they grew up with. Teachers and parents didn't worry about what their children felt unless it was the strap or the stick. But now we have to be so concerned about everyone's feeling. And it seems though everyone isn't better off for it. There's such a disrespect. There's such a a, a, a wildness about life today. And yet it all makes sense, you understand, if you judge right and wrong, not on substance, but on aesthetics, on how attractive it is, on how happy it makes people. That's the thing we may not do. We may not offend people. We may not make people angry. Even in our own congregation, we far too often make decisions based on how people respond rather than what's right or wrong. And it's not new. This is what led Israel to Saul. And this is what led to the Lord's choosing of Saul for Israel. He says, you want a king? Fine, I'll give you exactly the king you want. A shiny, new, outwardly attractive king. Just like athletic, athletic students today get better grades, just like well-dressed people are presumed morally superior, just like a nice house must mean nice people, so to King Saul must be good because he looks so good. But we're wrong, and we'll always be wrong when we use that as the standard for right and wrong in our world. When we pursue relationships with people that we think will make our lives better. When we look for the aesthetically pleasing person, they have to be attractive. 
when we look for that career that we think will make people think highly of us, they will respect us because of it. It will make us lots of money and we'll have all of the things of this life. Indeed, when so many of our choices, so many of our choices are made with the appealing and attractive in mind, and we fail to take into account who God is and what God commands, and we forget Him to our sorrow. Let's take a little deeper look at this King Saul who appears so good on the surface, even on the surface of our text, even as we read through these verses, he seems so good. But let's look a little deeper. Let's look at what's going on with this man. For example, why was it when a king was supposed to be a shepherd over Israel. Now, now understand that whole shepherd theme is woven deep into the psyche of every Israelite. Abram was a shepherd. Isaac was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. David will be a shepherd. Jesus says, I am the great shepherd. Shepherding and kingship in Israel, that's as, that's, that's as close a connection as you're going to get. And what does a shepherd do? A shepherd watches over his animals. A shepherd protects and preserves them. A shepherd guards them and guides them. So now we meet a guy who can't find donkeys, let alone sheep. He can't find donkeys. This is a guy that goes through this lane, can't find them, goes there, can't find them, can't, can't find them anywhere. And then when they get so close ultimately to Samuel's hometown, why is it that the servant is the one who suggests to Saul Hey, wait, the prophet's here. We're, we're right by the prophet's house. Let's go see the prophet. Keep in mind that in chapter 3, verse 20, we read these words, And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew Samuel, that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Everybody knew Samuel, we're told, in chapter 3. Everybody knew that he was God's chosen servant. Everybody but Saul. Saul has no clue who Samuel is. He has to ask these girls, who's Samuel? He runs into Samuel. Do you know where the seer is? I'm the seer. How could Saul be so dense? How could he miss what is so obvious? Ah, you say, wait a second, that's not very fair. You're reading way too much into this, reverend. Okay, why then does the Lord tell Samuel that when, why when the Lord told Samuel rather that Saul had come, did he say that here is the man of whom I spoke to you, he it is who shall restrain my people. Verse 17 of chapter 9. Here he, he it is who will restrain my people. A word that means hinder Hold back, imprison. And verse 20, look at verse 20. It uses the word desirable. In verse 20, as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not send your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? That word desirable has in its typical usage quite a negative note to it. It's the idea of covetousness of desiring and demanding something that isn't ours and isn't ours to enjoy. So that Samuel says, you are the coveted one of Israel that they should never have wanted. God says, you are the one that's going to imprison my people, O Saul. 
Which is only to say that when you go just below the surface, see, the surface of the story is good. Saul looks good, acts good, seems good. You dig a little deeper. You get under the surface. And the preponderance of the evidence that lies just below the surface presents to us a leader who can't find, who doesn't instinctively turn to the Lord for help, and who will make Israel's life more difficult and not less. Which is exactly what Saul turns out to be. All of these hints at the beginning of chapter or, or of King's, Saul's kingship bear out. They become exactly what God prophesied they would be. Saul is not a good man. Now, if that's the truth, you ask, why would the Lord foist Saul, so superficially appealing and yet so substantially troubling, why would he foist him upon the people as king? Yeah, but he really wasn't the Lord's choice, was he? The Lord's choice is coming. Saul is Israel's choice. Oh, wow, there is a very real way in which we can and must, that, must acknowledge that Saul is the Lord's choice. After all, the Lord did choose him. But he chose him in response to the people's desire. Remember how the Lord had rejected, or how Israel rather had rejected the Lord in chapter 8? Remember how he had warned them about their choice and their, they persisted? The Lord uses the choice of Saul as their king as a way to demonstrate that it is precisely when God's people go after their own heart's desire that things go wrong. He uses this as a way to, to show his people, don't you realize that when you forget me, things go badly? But when I lead, well, then you get a David, a shepherd king, a sweet singer of Israel, a man after my own heart. Oh, yes, King David will be a testimony to the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness. Indeed, in this very section, that promise of God's faithfulness is displayed in a very subtle way. Repeatedly, we read my people referenced here in this text, in chapter 9 at verse 16, the words my people are used twice. Then in verse 17, it's used again. And then in verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 1, it's used twice again. My people, says God, my people, my people. Reminding his people that for all of their foolishness and for all of the painful lesson that they're about to learn, God does not reject his people or despise them. He does not want them to suffer unnecessarily, but he does want them to learn that rejecting his will and word, forgetting about him, making their preferences their priority, judging superficially, longing for empty promises like our world offers, never brings blessing, only brings judgment. A word that we need to repeatedly hear and be reminded of today. A word about those who appear good, but aren't good. Those blessings that we think are good, but are ultimately empty. This is a word to us as church today. When we're tempted to chase the ways of the world because to us it looks so good. The commercial on TV makes it look so amazing. The people that have these things look so happy. Surely this is the way. Surely this is how we find blessing. 
No, says the Lord, never, ever, ever will you find blessing by pursuing these things. This is a word to our spirits when we rail against the Lord because of His dealings with us, when we say to God, this is unfair, why am I having to suffer? We do better by asking, is it possible that I am getting just what I asked for? Have I sown these seeds? Am I reaping the whirlwind having sown the wind? Oh yes, the seeds of destruction are never sown by the Lord. They are sown by us. We make poor choices. Saul was always Saul. And we couldn't see it. We can't see it to this day. We prefer that which harms us instead of that which blesses. We trust our wisdom instead of His way and word. And understandably from a worldly perspective, because it takes work to trust in the Lord, it takes coming to church and bowing at His feet, it takes sacrifice and suffering, it takes studying His word, it takes denying ourselves, it takes putting to death our old nature. Saul went from a rich home to a rich palace. David will go from a sheepfold to a cave to an exile to fear to the throne. Which of those two paths would you prefer? The path of Saul or the path of David? Be honest and then stop complaining that the Lord's giving you what you want. If you don't want to follow the path of Jesus Christ, the path of service and sacrifice, then don't complain when you suffer for your choices. Yet surely the Lord must have some fault in all of this mess. He, after all, does appoint Saul. He didn't have to. He could have chosen David from the start which is a common accusation thrown against the Lord, isn't it? The Lord should do things better. He does things so poorly. And yet it is an accusation that ultimately has no basis for consider what follows. Saul gives, or Samuel rather, after he anoints Saul, gives him three confirmatory signs. Not only is Saul anointed by Samuel, the prophet, God's chosen servant, Something in itself that was enough evidence that uh, not only was Saul chosen, but equipped for the work of office. After all, the anointing of oil, that oil was symbolic of the Spirit's outpouring upon the individual for this particular work. Now, we do need to note, we need to make a careful distinction here. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the anointing of a prophet, a priest, or a king was not the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in order to affect rebirth or regeneration. That is to say, it's not that Saul was born again, or at least it's not that the Scripture is saying Saul was born again, that he was given the Holy Spirit, which Holy Spirit will leave him eventually. It's rather that he was given the Spirit of God for the task of kingship. Very unique ministry, very unique task. And when that kingship, when that office is withdrawn from him, then the spirit is withdrawn as well. Not in an ultimate salvific sense, but rather in a very specific office sense. So when Samuel anoints Saul with the oil of uh, anointing, he is declaring that the Lord has equipped Saul for the work of kingship, that he has been given every gift he needs in order to do this job. And he shows that to him more concretely in three specific ways. 
Samuel's words will be proved true by the report of the donkey, uh, the, 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 sir, or when Samuel uh, meets the, uh, um, when he meets the, the people and they say, um, your father is ceased to be anxious about the donkeys and is anxious about you, then Samuel's prophetic word uh, concerning uh, Saul would be proved true. And not just about the donkey, but about the choice of Saul to be king over Israel. For Saul will be given nourishment, and nourishment, by the way, of a very particular sort. Not only not only does Saul's, or Samuel's words prove true in the announcement uh, of, of uh, the men that he meets along the way at Sarah's, or Rachel's rather, tomb, but also the men going to Bethel who give him food were probably going there to worship. That explains why they have and why we read about their uh, provisions, that they have three young donkeys and three loaves of bread and another a skin of wine. These are not just people going out to have something to eat, to go to have a picnic. These are people going with the provisions for a sacrifice. They're going to make a sacrifice to God. And then they give that bread that was dedicated to the Lord, that holy bread intended for God's anointed, They give it to Saul. They say, Saul, you are God's anointed. You are worthy of this support. A sign that would confirm that Saul had genuinely been anointed as king, holding a unique and special office in Israel. And then finally, the third sign is that he would prophesy. Again, note that this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is for a very specific task, vital and necessary But we can't use the story of Saul as an example of someone who was born again and then lost his salvation. That's just not what's going on. The Spirit of God poured out on Saul, who later leaves Saul, is the Spirit who who provides a particular gift for a particular work. Now, all of this is only to demonstrate that the Lord's word to Saul was true. He is the king. The Lord had chosen him. And the Lord was providing him with all that he needed in order to do the work. He's provided a confirmation of God's word. He's given nourishment and he's given the Spirit's presence to do the work, which is simply to say that God gave Saul everything he needed to succeed and to thrive in his work. He was given all the tools, all the necessary encouragements, all the necessary gifts. There was no way you could say God had set Saul up for failure. There was no way you could say that Saul's future failure was because God was stingy in his provision. No, precisely because of this event, precisely because of all of these confirmatory signs, we can say and will say that any failure of Saul's part is entirely on his own shoulders. He's given everything he needs and he will still reject the Lord. Because in the end, the problem Israel has, and the problem we have, is not the circumstances of life, is not the opportunities, it's not that we need to be given equal, everybody has to be treated fairly. If we're not all treated fairly, then it's, unf- it's not right. Now the problem we have is that we have selfish hearts, greedy hearts, thoughtless, careless hearts that focus on ourselves, not on serving the Lord. You can go back to that, that image, that video of people lining up to race. The race that they're running is presumably the race of materialism, 
of wealth, of good jobs, good families, good circumstance. Because for our world, that's the most important thing. And in that race, some people win and some people lose. But what if the purpose of life isn't your happiness, your wealth, your circumstance of life? What if the purpose of life is the glory of God? We have a tendency to think that God should sanctify our purposes and our pursuit of fullness, that we know the way to blessedness and happiness, that we know the way to joy in this life, and God should just make it happen. Oh, the occasional nudge here or there, or the occasional light reprimand from God, that's acceptable. But generally speaking, God should pour His goodness upon our choices. Our marriages should be endless happiness. Our businesses should be sufficiently successful. Our health should be constant and strong. But what happens if you understand that fullness only comes when the sinful is sacrificed and the righteous is sanctified? That fullness comes in fellowship with God and with each other in the holiness of His Word and will. What if you understand that the best among us are the holiest among us? Well, then it doesn't matter where you start on that line. If you're a hundred yards from the start or if you're two feet from the finish, all that matters is how you run the race. Do you glorify your God? Do you serve Him? Do you praise Him? Do you surrender all to Him? Do you deny your life and find it only in Him? Do you take seriously the water of baptism and its call to you to put to death your old nature and bring to life the new? Is your existence purely for the praise of God? That was Israel's problem, wasn't it? They didn't believe their life existed for the praise of God. They believed that life existed for their praise. So they wanted a king who would make their life better. They got Saul. It's going to go badly. The Lord says, it's not going to go badly because I, didn't, I did something wrong. I'll give him every blessing there is. Because every external blessing matters not a whit when the heart of man is rebellious against his king. You need a king that will lead you in the way of righteousness, that will call you to surrender, that will enable you to walk in newness of life. You need a king who will not change the circumstances of your life, but will change your life so that you might serve him. So that in the end, Saul's anointing as king in this passage is a lovely object lesson. An object lesson in the Lord's faithfulness utterly and completely to the end and in our foolishness, in our tendency to desire what is empty when we are offered what is full. And we must learn this lesson. Daily we must learn this lesson in our culture and in our context. You think of Kiara here who's being raised in a world that will tell her what happiness is, what fullness is, that it's in her identity, it's in her sexuality, it's in her materialism, that it's in all of these things. She will scroll Instagram if Instagram's still around when she gets to that point and she will see that life in its fullness is presented in a very particular way and it's an empty way and it is a dark way and it's a way that ends up like Saul ends up angry with a spirit in his heart causing him to rage, Saul's kingship ends poorly. 
very quickly it ends poorly. Because this is not the path of life and of fullness. The path of life and fullness is the path of surrender to God, to trust in Christ, to acceptance of His will. Not just when it brings us blessing, but especially when it brings us pain. When the Lord says, serve that ungodly member of the church, that brother or sister that offends you so, be kind to them. Graciously show them love. Cover sins with, a, with love. And we say, oh, but Lord, but Lord, it's so easy to gossip on my phone. It's so easy to slander to my friends. It's so easy to make fun. When the Lord says, surrender, surrender all that you have in service to the King, we say, well, most of what we have, well, some of what we have, right? That's what you mean, Lord. He says, no, surrender it all. On and on it goes in so many ways in our lives. We are called to see that the way forward, the way to glory, is the way down. It's the way to our death, the way to our sacrifice, the way to our surrender. For in that moment, we find freedom. We find release. We find joy. That is the blessedness of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Whether we are rich or whether we are poor, whether we have much or whether we have little, we learn the secret to contentment in Jesus Christ. That our God is great and greatly to be praised and He loves us more perfectly than we'll ever know in Jesus Christ. Saul is what we want. Saul is really what we should never have. Jesus Christ may not be what we want. With the cross, taking it up, suffering, But when you walk in His way, then you walk in the way of life. Let's ask the Lord to help us do that in prayer. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the way that it exposes the truth of our own hearts. We pray that You would help us, Lord, not to perpetuate these lies. We pray for our teachers, Lord, who are tempted to prefer the athletic and the attractive, whose grades are always, it seems, slightly better than the rest. We pray for our young people, Lord, who are so often tempted to pursue lifestyles that appear successful, that are being motivated to show externally that their lives are successful when there is a deep darkness within. We pray for all of us, Lord, who want what is not right or good, but is so often selfish and proud. Help us, Lord, to see that the way that we walk is the way of pain, but the way that you lead is the way of blessing. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.